Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you on a beautiful day. It's a powerful song to lead us into our time of worship today and to kind of get our minds organized around God's Word today. Uh, this morning, we come to the end of our message series on faith in the age of anxiety, and I know through the emails and the comments that I've received that we kind of hit a nerve with this topic, I think, because anxiety is everywhere. It's like the ocean we swim in. Uh, everybody seems to struggle with anxiety at one level or another, worrying about the future, anticipating some negative outcome, getting stressed out over you know, what might happen. Anxiety is a type of fear, but it's more of this just free-floating dread, something that gets your imagination going with all kinds of negative possibilities. And so I've said anxiety is like that hamster wheel in your brain of just negative thoughts that start spinning, and it's so hard to slow it down. So I'm kind of worried that I've raised more questions than we've answered, and I think we should just admit that this will be an ongoing issue for all of us. This is dealing with anxieties. It's not just a once-and-done thing. But what we've learned is that we encounter fear and anxiety at some level <coughs> excuse me, every day. Because some people even use fear as a motivator, like the Australian swim team coach I read about who had an unusual motivational technique. A second or two after his swimmers jump into the pool, he throws in a live crocodile, three-foot-long crocodile. Boy, do his swimmers go to the other side of the pool as fast as they can. Maybe they should try that at Berkeley Aquatic. I don't know. I, I know some parents who might be tempted to motivate their children that way. But maybe you know someone like that, a boss, a teacher, a coach, a relative, someone in your life who tries to intimidate, who tries to use fear or threats. You're kind of walking on eggshells around that person because you're afraid their anger is going to erupt like a volcano and you don't want to be caught in the lava. That's sort of the definition of a hostile workplace or any kind of hostile relationship. Some others see stoking our fears and anxieties as a way of increasing their profits. How many news shows start with something like this? New research on vitamins is your health at risk, or startling discovery about family pets or your children in danger. You know, they use fear to get your attention, and then hopefully you'll turn to them for answers. Or our politicians, they use fear and anxiety all the time, create a crisis, and so I'll get your support. Our country's facing its biggest catastrophe ever so vote for me. Many Christian groups use that same technique as a fundraising tool. You know, the worst humanitarian crisis ever, the greatest threat to the gospel, until their next appeal letter. It just saddens me when Christians use the same kind of hype and hysteria as the secular world, because it just contributes to this whole atmosphere of anxiety that surrounds us. With car alarms, security cameras, media sensationalism, we just live in this world that promotes anxiety. And the problem is some fears are real and legitimate, but most of them are not. People who live in a war-torn country like Syria or in earthquake-ravaged uh, places like Puerto Rico, they have legitimate fears. Their basic sense of security is threatened. When that happens, well, then your whole life becomes focused around your personal safety. When your bombs are going off around you or mudslides are wiping out your home or flood riot waters are rising as they were in Mississippi this week, it's hard to think about anything else. We all need a basic sense of physical security just to live productive lives, to grow and to develop into the kind of people God wants us to be. So fear is not all bad. In some situations, fear is the proper response. A child who has no fear spends a lot of time in the emergency room. But a child with too much fear will be withdrawn and traumatized. 
And so as human beings, we have this built-in instinctive response to fear, to fearful situations, whether it's a sudden noise, a shadow in the darkness, or being called into the principal's office. The body tenses. Adrenaline shoots into your veins. Your eyes open wider. You're ready to move. It will be flight or fight. Flight means we're ready to run away as fast as we can, all elbows and knees going in the opposite direction. Fight means we go on alert and we're ready to attack whatever seems to threaten us. Now, flight is a good strategy if you're confronted by an unfriendly dog or a slow-moving criminal. But in other situations, flight is not a good response. For many people, flight means just being passive in the face of fearful situations, just kind of wanting to pull in like a turtle, hoping that the outside world is just going to change if we just hide long enough. Well, what about fight? If that same unfriendly dog was threatening your small child, you would fight. There'd be fur flying everywhere. A couple of years ago, there was a story in the news about a woman in Detroit who stopped at a traffic light and her window was open and a carjacker came up and just sucker punched her right through the open window, dragged her out of the car, threw her on the ground, got in the car, started to drive away. The only problem was her infant child was in the back seat, in a car seat. That woman jumped up, she lunged at this guy through the window, grabs onto him as he's driving away, dragging her down the street, and she just pummels this guy senseless until he crashes the car and breaks his leg. She was going to fight for her baby, and that was the right thing to do. The problem with anxiety, the way anxiety is different from fear, is that there's nothing to fight, and there's nowhere to flee. Our basic physical safety is not at risk. It's all in our head. All the what-ifs are in your head, and so your body is releasing all these same chemicals that it would if you were facing some real physical threat, but it's all in your head, but your body doesn't know that. So the adrenaline shoots into your bloodstream. Your heart starts beating faster. You can't sleep at night. You can't focus. You're ready to fight or flee, but how do you get away from your own thoughts? That's why if you struggle with serious anxiety, you should see your doctor because there are helpful medications just to lower the effect of all these chemicals that your brain is releasing into your body. You may need that, and that's perfectly okay. But the main question for most of us who are facing sort of normal anxiety is this. How do you take control over your thoughts and win the battle to control that inner conversation that you're having with your own anxious self? So let's look one last time at the Apostle Paul's prescription for dealing with anxiety, these verses that I've been encouraging you all to memorize so that you can have it instantly available in your brain when you need it. That's the value of memorizing Scripture. God's truth becomes a counterweight to all this stuff that the world is throwing at us that just clings to us like barnacles on a ship's hull. So you should have this passage, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Underline it, highlight it in your Bible, your Bible app, but you've got to make it your own. It's the only way for God's truth to be effective in your life is that you've got to make it yours. Me talking about it will do you absolutely no good. You've got to make it your own, and the best way to do that is through memorization. So let's read it together one last time, if you would, off the screen with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now don't let me down. Make sure you put that into your mind. I want to talk this this morning just about that last verse. Verse 9, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. Do these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's the goal of this passage. It's the goal of this whole message series that you would experience in real time a different reality, a new awareness of the God of peace in you. God, God wants that. I mean, Jesus wants that for every single one of us. He said it this way, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That's really what he desires for each one of us, a sense of peace that comes through his presence. He said it again in John 16. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. My peace, my shalom I give to you. The biblical concept of peace is rooted in that ancient Hebrew word shalom, which means so much more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom is a wholeness, it's a completeness, completeness. it's a, a soundness, a health, a prosperity. It carries with it a sense of permanence. God's peace is not just stopping conflict between two warring parties. It's not just the absence of conflict. I mean, two people can stop fighting with each other, but the anger and all the ill feelings can still be there simmering right under the surface. I see that in so many divorced couples and other family situations, the anger is still there. That's the world's way of peace. God's peace isn't like that. God's peace is twofold. First, there's peace with God so that then we can experience the peace of God. Peace with God so we experience the peace of God. We're told in Romans 5, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is so much more than just stopping this war of sin that we've got going on with God. It means a whole new relationship with him that's so much more. Because of Jesus, God's shalom is so much more. It promises all the qualities of wholeness and completeness and soundness and health to those who look to him through Jesus Christ. Shalom is positive and active. It's more, more than just peace of mind. It's actually peace of soul. A freedom from inner turmoil. A peace that transcends our situations, even our own flaws. It transcends our circumstances because it doesn't come from us. It comes from God who's living in us. We're not in a position to really attain this kind of peace by ourselves. The prophet Isaiah wrote, You will keep in perfect peace. Those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Isaiah 26.3. We can experience the peace of God until we experience peace with God. Now in the Gospels, Jesus uses the greeting, peace be with you, many times. It's a translation of the Hebrew phrase, shalom aleichem. This is more than just some throwaway line by Jesus, like saying, God bless you when somebody sneezes. 
It was his intentional post-resurrection greeting when he appeared to the disciples in the locked room in John 20, verse 19. And again later, that same greeting a week later in John 20, 26. Peace be with you. Shalom Aleichem. My peace is yours, Jesus is saying. Peace with the Father through forgiveness of sins. Now peace within your heart because you know you're loved and forgiven. And now peace with others because I want you to live out what you've received. That's what Jesus is saying. Paul uses the exact same phrase in the New Testament many times. Or this verse, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Isn't that a beautiful expression? May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. What a great prayer to pray over someone who's anxious, someone who is troubled. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Now in this series, we've been talking about how experiencing the peace of God, it's not something that just falls out of the sky and hits you in the head. There are practical things that we do to put ourselves in a position to be able to receive this peace into our daily lives. We've been using the acronym CALM to help us remember some of these steps. C is to celebrate the nearness of God. There's a worship component to this. A is to ask in prayer. There's a prayer piece to this puzzle. L is to leave it with God. There's an attitude that we need to develop. And M, to meditate on God's word and all God's goodness, filling our mind with his positive love, and the beauty of his natural creation. Paul says, put these principles into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Well, I want to add an extra M to that acronym. One of the most practical habits that we can implement into your daily life will dramatically lower your stress and anxiety level. If you put it into practice, one simple word, but such an important concept, such a great principle to build in your life, it is guaranteed to lower your anxiety and stress. I make you that promise with a money-back guarantee. If this doesn't work for you, then you get all the money back that you've ever given to the church, but only if you've been tithing, okay? So that's 10% of your gross. That's in the small print. One practical thing, another M, and that is create margin. Create margin. If we want to be effective followers of Christ, we need to create some margin in our lives. Because ask yourself, is God pro-exhaustion? Does he not lead people beside still waters anymore? Does he want us to be living this kind of hyperactivity all the time? I don't think so. Thomas Kelly once wrote, God will not guide us into an intolerable scramble of panting feverishness. And yet that's when most of us seem to live. How do we begin to turn things around? By creating margin. Dr. Richard Swenson wrote the book on this, and he defines margin as the space between our load and our limits. The space between our load and our limits. Like if you've ever been out driving across over a bridge with a sign that sees trucks, you know, no trucks to exceed five tons. Well, how do you know if the truck in front of you is over five tons or not? I mean, I want to stop it and weigh it because I don't want to be behind a truck that's exceeding the load limit, right? The reason most of us are so stressed out and anxious is because our load exceeds our limit. We are driving a six-ton truck over a five-ton bridge, and something is going to give. Are we creating, do we have any margin in our lives? Are we always living right up to the edge, even exceeding what we can rationally carry. 
in our relationships with God and with self, with work, with family, with sports and calendars and all the rest. Dr. Swenson says, margin is having breath left at the top of the stairs, money left at the end of the month, and sanity left at the end of adolescence. Honestly, as I look at our congregation, I see this so much, we tend to pack things so close together. There's just no room for something to go wrong. One thing messes up, and then it piles in the next, and pretty soon it's like dominoes. We've just got no space for error. That's what creates so much stress and anxiety in our lives. Once I was flying to attend a conference, I had to change planes in Chicago, which is never a good idea. Of course, we left Newark late. And all along, while we're getting ready to land, I'm calculating, okay, how much time am I going to have by when we land to find my gate at Chicago and get on my plane? You know, I never checked bags, so when I landed, I grabbed my carry-on, I bulldozed my way to the front of the plane, you know, so I could be the first one out the door when it opened. I raced through the airport like a madman, got to the gate just as they were getting ready to close the door. I made it, but I was sweaty, I was all stressed out. It just kind of like ruined the whole rest of the day. Why? Because there wasn't enough margin. A pastor friend of mine was on his way to perform a wedding in Pennsylvania. He thought he had plenty of time until he got pulled over by one of those friendly Pennsylvania State Troopers. Turned out he had an expired inspection sticker. He had sent in the renewal form, but the sticker had not yet arrived. That's the story he told the police officer. So the State Trooper impounded his car, left him stranded on the side of the road, and he had 15 minutes to get to the wedding. He paid a gas station attendant 50 bucks to drive him the rest of the way to get to the church. There was just no margin. Folks, too many of us are living that way every single day. Our plans go awry, our emotions start churning, traffic slows us down, the train is late, the kids aren't ready, the clock's ticking, the bank account's too low, so-and-so didn't follow through on what they were supposed to do, you forgot to send that email, and your stress level's going through the roof. We're late to the meeting, late to the office, late to church, and we've gotten used to it. We're just accustomed to having no margin. And then we make excuses. We've grown accustomed to being anxious. And friends, for most of us, it's the way we choose to live. Christian writer Henry Nouwen says, the spiritual life means the effort to create some space in which God can act. To prevent everything in your life from being filled up that somewhere you're not occupied and certainly not preoccupied to create that space in which something can happen that you hadn't planned or counted on. That's the problem with our busyness. It's not bad in and of itself, but it gets to the point where it gets between us and God and actually becomes damaging to all of our relationships. And that's why we need to take margin seriously. Margin helps you guard your reserves, creates buffers, and space between your load and your limit. If you are chronically overloaded, overcommitted, overscheduled, overwhelmed, give yourself some space to rest, some room to breathe, some freedom to move, some transition time to adapt, some money to spare. Only then will you be able to truly flourish in your relationships as God intended. Only then will you really know the God of peace. What we're talking about is redesigning your life. You know, people will pay a lot of money to doctors these days to help medicate their stress, and that's okay. But in some ways, when we do only that, we're just dealing with the symptoms. Psychologist David McCaslin writes, although people will pay to fix their stress, they're not about to change the lifestyle that's actually causing it. 
If we want long-term solution, we've got to get serious about examining the way we are living our lives and make some changes to the lifestyle that's actually causing all of this anxiety. I believe this is going to be crucial for Christians in the next decade, that our lifestyle will be one of the most important areas of witness that we have. You see, margin is countercultural. Theology will be important, personal morality will be important, but the most effective way of witnessing to the peace and the serenity of Christ is going to be your lifestyle in a world that's spinning out of control. If we are able to create these pockets of sanity in the midst of all the chaos we see going around us, I think that's going to be a powerful witness to Jesus Christ. We may have to make some choices that are unpopular with the larger community, but we want to learn to live by God's priorities and not the world's pressures. So don't let your load exceed your limit. Take that first step. Make sure you've surrendered your life to the lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Find peace with God that leads to experiencing the peace of God. Create some margin in your life. Look at your schedule this week. How does God really want you to invest your time? Where could you create space so that you could sit quietly at his feet? If we want to experience God's peace, we have to adopt his perspective and live by his principles. That's the summary of this whole sermon series. If we want to experience God's peace, we have to adopt his perspectives and live by his principles. So look at the stress points in your life. Look at what causes you to be anxious throughout the coming week. What do those things say about who you are and how you're actually living? Are you really living by your real desires and your real priorities? So seriously look at that. Or is it time for a change? So celebrate the nearness of God through worship. Ask in prayer. Develop that prayer life. Leave your life in God's hands. Release all these outcomes to Him. Meditate on God's goodness through God's Word and through the beauty of creation. And please create some margin in your life before you drive yourself crazy. No one can do this for you, but you don't have to do it alone. The God of peace wants you to know His shalom, His wholeness, His abundance, and His love. Let's pray together. Lord, I know what it's like when I pack things too close together, something doesn't go right, and then it just seems like the whole rest of the day is panic. Lord, we know that you don't want us to live that way. You want us to know your peace. So help us to do the practical, real-life things that we need to do to create some margin, to give ourselves some grace, and give ourselves some space so that we have time to do all that you have called us to. Not necessarily everything that the world wants us to do, but everything that you have called us to, Lord. And help us to do it with the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.